Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. For the next two hours, I will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There's a very interesting piece in the Washington Post entitled Road to War, U.S. Struggle to Convince Allies and Zelensky of Risk of Invasion. It's a very interesting narrative. For insight into this and analysis, let's turn to my first guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, which is headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Dr. David Walalu, as always, David, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you, Walmer. So this is the story they tell. The nation's top intelligence, military, and diplomatic leaders filed into the Oval Office for this urgent meeting with Biden. And for months, these officials had watched warily as Putin massed tens of thousands of troops and lined up tanks and missiles along Ukraine's borders. The U.S. intelligence community had penetrated multiple points of Russian political leadership and intelligence and other areas. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, focused on the increasing volume of intelligence related to Russia and Ukraine. He set up the Oval Office meeting after his own thinking had gone from uncertainty about Russia's intentions to concern he was being too skeptical about the prospects of military action to alarm. Dr. Walalu, this is a bunch of garbage. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's no context here. Why was Putin amassing troops on the border? No mention here of the meeting in Geneva where President Putin sent Biden his demands and they were totally ignored. I mean, this is this is almost a, a, a woe is me narrative. And we just had to do this because Russia is insane. Well, you're absolutely correct, Wilmer. You know, yeah, it, it, it didn't make sense to me. I also, when I read the piece, and I kind of like, what are they thinking? <laughs> you probably even wondered, why did Wilmer send me this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, actually, it's good to have a conversation over this so listeners exactly. can understand sometimes, you know, just what's written, it's not exactly or does not exactly reflect what is on the ground. Well, we all know what Russia's concerned, the key concerns regarding security guarantees were. And when they presented the proposals back then, and I remember I had this conversation with you, and when we, had, when we said, you know, I bet you if the West ignores this, Russia's going to move forward, because how would, you, how would you, if you were on a Russia side, on that side, interpreting this lack of engagement from the West? So, and that's exactly what happened. So basically, the NATO and 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 uh, and U.S. and also and Russia, for that matter, interpreted this as an open door policy per se. It's sort of a free interpretation, if you will, of 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 this uh, indivisible security and so forth, which we all know. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, it became clear at that time that okay, we are not going to expand eastward, whatever. 
But we went back on our word, even during the meeting between Putin and French President Emmanuel Macron at that time. Now, he recalled, he, uh, Emmanuel Macron, recalled Russia's proposal on security guarantees because those were straightforward key points. And yet the U.S. and NATO kind of ignored that and said, oh, no, we're going to move forward with whatever we plan on. And now we are living with the results of that to their fault, because there's one who caused all this. So just to wrap up this point, in putting out a narrative like this, particularly as from the reports that I'm reading, you know, Russia is winning. This is basically over. It's it's a matter of time and really up to Russia in terms of how quickly or how methodically they wanted to they want to continue to engage and impose their military plan. Does this give you any any signals about what the United States is planning? Does the promotion of this kind of narrative send any signal to you? Well, the signal that I'm getting, Wilmert, is that there is no strategy in place. And what should I be surprised? We have not had a a good strategy for the last 30 years. What will make this difference? This is where you realize uh, or your listeners need to realize that, you know, Russia is not going to fall into that trap of dragging this forever because they know we saw what happened in Afghanistan and we saw what the outcome is. Now, Afghanistan is back to what it was before we went in. So Russia understands those dynamics because Putin is a student of history and understand how the geopolitical game is played. Mm -hmm. Because the reason why you have articles like this, that really doesn't make any sense because it has no argument in it, right. at least in my opinion. It tells me that there is no strategy in place. And they can't keep going like this forever because they will not be willing to say to Russia, of course, we made a mistake. Let's sit down and negotiate whatever we need to negotiate to end this conflict. There are reports now, Russian-backed officials say Ukraine launched strikes at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. There's no good outcome here when you when you launch attacks on a nuclear facility. This really seems to be uh, more of the same from early on in this conflict when when Ukraine did this the first time that they're playing a very very dangerous game with nuclear facilities, trying to create a scenario or a narrative that Russia. Again, a, a bunch of madmen that are willing to risk nuclear catastrophe to accomplish their ends. And this doesn't make sense because they're winning. Hmm. Well, will I even take the Ukraine word that it was the Russians that attacked the uh, nuclear power plant? Mm-hmm. I mean, how can we trust the Ukrainians given that, you know, even, you know, I looked through the ranking of, of uh, the uh, there, there is a database in the what we call the Transparency International (TI). You know, and I looked at the ranking for over the years, not just yesterday, but over the years. And, and Ukraine has always ranked over 100. So the last one I saw was 120 out of 182. And what does it tell me? It tells me that they have no accountability. They have no credibility whatsoever. So the statements that are issued that the Russians did this and did that. We all saw this before regarding the massive rape that the Russians did and all that. Turns out to be nothing but a hoax. 
one of their one of their uh, officials from within the Ukrainian parliament testified to this and she was fired so here is the thing that i need your listeners to know about the zaporizhia uh, uh, nuclear power plant this one is about uh, it's 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 located near the city of uh, it's called inner bodar which is on the banks of the Dnieper river just about uh, 180 to 200 kilometers from the Donbas area. That's what makes it very crucial. Why is that? Because the majority of, of, of uh, Russian speaker uh, people are in Donbas. And you know now that the Russian-backed separatists there, this is why Ukraine is kind of initiating those statements as to all the nuclear stuff or the radiation and scaring Europe, whatever. And is the Russians that are attacking the nuclear plant? It has no credibility. And the reason why the Russians now are protecting the power plants is because they want to prevent any catastrophe from taking place. That is the reason why they took over that. There's a uh, Associated Press story, Urban Combat and Beyond, Ukrainian recruits get UK training. Hundreds of new Ukrainian army recruits are training to liberate Ukraine from Russian invasion, but they are doing it more than a thousand miles away in England. Again, I'm always asking about what signals does this send? I mean, uh, hundreds of Ukrainian recruits from what I understand, Russia hasn't even used 15% of its army, and it's already executing the plan that it put in place. So if this is true, is this more for political consumption, or do they actually believe, unless they plan to train a bunch of snipers and put them in cities, what good does this do? Yeah, this is nothing but hypes, uh, Walmart. This is usually one of the uh, tactics that the Ukrainian government, because they're losing the war. You know, what, what else would you do? You're going to have to sort of uh, uh, influence the narrative, shall we say. And because the listeners will be like saying, oh, that's what the Ukrainian government said. You know, we, we all know if you know what to look, where to look for and how to decipher mm-hmm. that kind of language used, you will see, you will read between the lines, you know. But here is the thing about this uh, foreign mercenaries or fighters, whatever you want to call them, you know. Now you get the Russia, the uh, Russian, the uh, British uh, 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 recon plane that had, you know, went through the Bering Sea, and I just checked on it this morning. That crossed into the Russian airspace, which tells me what? Why provoking Russia that way? So the Russians sent their 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 fighter jets and escorted the plane out. But it tells me also how much now behind the scenes. You're going to be seeing those mercenaries going in. As a matter of fact, they are, as of yesterday, they are the trial of five foreigners, three Brits, one Croat, and one Swedish. Believe it or not. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the one that I had to check on, and I checked with my own sources, his name is John Hardin. John Hardin has moved to Ukraine in 2018. You know, and makes you just wonder, was he placed there by MI6? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But the point is, the, this you are seeing now foreigners, but Russia is not going to back down from this because in the Donbass area, this is under the control of the Russian uh, support, uh, separatists, whatever you want to call them there. They went ahead with the trial, and the trial, the outcome was to sentence 
There's two for fighters. There's from Brits and one Moroccan mm-hmm. to death penalty. And here is the interesting thing. In Russia, the death penalty has been removed since 1997, but not in the new uh, territory uh, in, in Donbass. So. Final story. President Putin says collective West purposely destroying European security system, NATO moving east. Western globalist elites are provoking chaos by rekindling old and inciting new conflicts, implementing a policy of so-called containment, while in fact undermining any alternative sovereign paths of development. Thus, they are desperately trying to preserve the hegemony and power they are slipping out, that is slipping out of their grasp. They trying to keep countries and peoples in the grip of a neo-colonial order. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> Your thoughts, Dr. David Wallalu. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, Walmart, because that's where the danger comes in. Because the those so-called powers will start to embark on policies and strategies that really will make make your eyebrows rise to the point that saying, what the heck is going on? Because desperate, you know, situations calls for desperate measures. And you start seeing certain policies. I'll give you just a quick example for your listeners to know. You know, why another, for example, four members of Congress are going to Taiwan just mm-hmm. exactly 12 days after what just happened? Last mm-hmm. time. You know, why provoke China for what? You know, and that tells you right there, because... This the emerging multipolar world that we are always talking about, you know, sort of now it's going to be opening up new opportunities for other countries, mainly in the global south. They are seeing where the trends are headed. Of course, the West, mainly the United States, it's not going to want to let that go, especially once you get into the financial aspects of it. Given that how, for example, Russia and China working on establishing that financial Mm -hmm. structure that will bypass the dollar, Mm -hmm. the U.S. dollar as the global currency. And that, in my opinion, will lead to some serious conflicts moving forward. Dr. David Walalu, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that analysis. Look forward to having you back. My pleasure, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Chris Hedges has a piece entitled, This Time the Collapse Will Be Global. Uh, He writes, the archaeological remains of past civilizations, including those of the prehistoric Cahokia Temple Mound complex in Illinois, are sobering reminders of our fate. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's an independent investigative journalist, analyst, author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, Daniel, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. So Chris writes, I'm standing atop a 100-foot-high temple mound, the largest known earthwork in the Americas built by prehistoric peoples, built at a confluence of the Illinois, Mississippi, and Missouri rivers 
are all that remain of one of the largest pre-Columbian settlements north of Mexico, occupied from around 800 to 1400 AD by perhaps as many as 20,000 people. This great city, perhaps the greatest in North America, rose, flourished, fell into decline, and was ultimately abandoned. Civilizations die in familiar patterns. Your thoughts, Daniel, as I see this as Chris Hedges' prediction of where we as a empire are headed. I, I totally agree with uh, Chris Hedges. I mean, uh, I, he may be too pessimistic from my point of view. I'm not really quite sure, but mm-hmm. he, he's absolutely right that the uh, that that global warming is a and a, a process, a phenomenon, just of overriding importance. Uh, it has the capacity to essentially decimate, I don't know if destroy is too strong a term, but decimate human society, uh, you know, uh, tear apart civilization. Um, and, and so far, the world is responding to it in, in a shockingly inadequate manner. I mean, uh, I mean, little progress is being made uh, in terms of, uh, of, of reducing CO2 emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, which are the prime cause of global warming. And if you, you know, you glance out your window, if you're in a city, and what do you see? You see a, a dense river of cars. Uh, and those cars are each one of those, you know, emits vast amounts of, of greenhouse gases that cause global warming. Um, and and nothing nothing is being done to restrain uh, their production or use. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk, uh, and by politicians who who want voters to believe it'll be sort of like you know a, it'll involve a minor tweak here and there, and will be utterly painless. So we can go on living our lives the way we always have, but it's not true. I mean, in order to deal with this problem, society has got to undergo profound changes. Society has got to mobilize its resources, its you know, its powers, in ways it never has before. It's a it's truly a a global civilizational threat, and it requires a global civilizational response. He writes, civilizations die in familiar patterns. They exhaust natural resources. They spawn parasitic elites who plunder and loot the institutions and systems that make a complex society possible. They engage in futile and self-defeating wars. And then the rot sets in. The great urban centers die first, falling into irreversible decay. Central authority unravels. Artistic expression and intellectual inquiry are replaced by a new dark age, the triumph of tawdry spectacle and the celebration of crowd-pleasing imbecility. There's a pattern here, I think, over history that Chris Hedges is drawing upon. And and, and, And so much of what he lays out is exactly where we are, but those in positions of power and responsibility don't seem to understand the historic precedent. Yes. I, I mean, the only thing that bothers me about Chris Hedges' approach is that it, it, it's, it's... It is very it's pessimistic. Very, <laughs> very pessimistic, and it's, it's, um, it's reminiscent of a guy 
a very, a very famous writer and thinker in his day named uh, Oswald Spengler, mm. who wrote a famous work called The Decline of the West. Mm-hmm. And it was a, you know, filled with similar rhetoric about, you know, you know, imbecilic public spectacles and and, fr- and frivolities and this and that and this and that. And the West was going to hell in a handbasket. And actually, Spengler became kind of a a prime contributor to the growth of radical right wing movements like fascism. Mm-hmm. So that so that's that's a cautionary note. And and and, you know, I, I don't think we should be defeatist. Because I think that global warming is a great challenge. I am a what I describe as a critical optimist. I think that if we make the right decisions, we can not only overcome this this process, but we can actually triumph. Um, you know, it's a it's it, it's funny. The uh, I mean, I mean, since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we have required greater and greater inputs of natural resources. But essentially, in order to conquer global warming, we have got to cease relying on global fuels for the first time, you know, in, in a thousand years, on, on, on fossil fuels, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. um, and, and learn to make energy out of, uh, out of sunlight, hydro, uh, geothermal. And wind. Uh, et cetera, and wind. Mm-hmm. But also equally important, in fact, in some ways the most important of all, is conservation. And and by conservation, I mean like you know, in, arranging our communities in intelligent ways that serve to minimize the these huge fossil fuel inputs. I mean, I mean cities that are walkable, bikeable, uh, etc. Um, and um, and I don't see this. I don't see us essentially giving up our, 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 our creature comforts, because I think actually we can, we can attain higher levels of, um, of, uh, of comfort and prosperity, but it's got to be intelligently arranged. And, and the trouble is now <laughs> is that, if you, as you may have noticed, it's the stupid people who are, who are in control. I mean, uh, human beings can be very intelligent individually, but somehow our political institutions are arranged in such a way that when they come together collectively, they seem to be getting stupider and stupider. And, and, and this, is the, this is the process that has to be overcome. We have to develop you know, you know, government structures that, are, that, that, that reflect the best of humanity, the most intelligent, the most cooperative, the most democratic. Uh, am I am I making sense here? You are making sense, and and that and that t- well, you always do, and that takes me to the, to the point. Uh, one of the statements he makes here about the spawning of parasitic elites who plunder and loot the institutions and systems that make a complex society possible. That is one of the things that frightens me the most because it's hard for me to find the institutions or the groups that are prepared to put the brakes on these parasitic elites. They seem to be they seem to have been able to take control of the institutions that are supposed to be the check and balance and they're they're feeding themselves 
uh, on the backs of the rest of us. And there seems to be no end in sight to that process. Yeah, I mean, as a socialist, I believe that capitalism is reaching is is in the final stages of exhaustion, mm-hmm. and that exhaustion manifest, manifests itself in many ways. From one of which is the complete inability to deal with global warming in any kind of effective and constructive way, and another way, other uh, uh, manifestation is just the 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 stupidity and selfishness, and short-sightedness and nihilism of those on top and the and the growth of war i mean uh, you know we already have a good-sized war in the ukraine mm-hmm. which is which is which is wreaking havoc and you know and it seems as if the u.s government is doing its level best to drum up a second war you know in the western pacific which would be 10 times you know more devastating at the very least um, and so, so the our governing elites are 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 pursuing wasteful, vicious, counterproductive, and above all else, stupid policies. And it's the workers, the working masses, which is really masses, which is really ninety nine point nine percent of humanity, you know, have got to to take control. And and. And use this awesome industrial machinery that we've developed, and 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 use it, deploy it in such a way that it benefits humanity, not a select few of Wall. No, that's a small number of Wall Street parasites. One of the things that I'm going to start using as my own personal barometer of this global warming issue is the Colorado River, and I think this week. Uh, they're supposed to release the Colorado Basin. There's a, the, the states in the Colorado Basin are supposed to release their blueprints for water conservation. And that, to me, will speak volumes in terms of um, how progressive they are, how real they are, and how seriously they're taking the the doom that is not even pending, they're in the midst of it right now. Now I'm going to look to the to the Colorado River and what they do with that resource. To me, that'll speak volumes. We got about a minute. I agree. If you want to look at another river, there's a shocking photo. Shocking photos have been posted of the Loire, uh, a river that that runs through western uh, France. Uh, it's it's beautiful. Uh, it's one of the, the most gorgeous tourist areas in the world, mm-hmm. uh, flanked by by these gorgeous chateaux from the uh, the 15th and 16th century. Amazing, um, and the river is now a, a a single strand of mud. I mean, it has dried up mm-hmm. due to the most devastating drought that Europe has seen in hundreds of years. Now, and this is a this is a course an aspect of, of climate change. We don't want this. Right. We don't need this. We've got to reverse this process. We can't survive this. We can't survive this. We don't and want it. True. We don't need it, and we can't survive it. We got fifteen seconds. And that's true for France, but it's true for every country on Earth. I mean, France is a very beautiful, prosperous country, but it's true for poor countries. It's true for con- poor countries and. And hot climates and, and cold climates, et cetera. I mean, humanity is in this thing together. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Sputnik International reports U.S. ramping up strike potential in Asia Pacific, working on missile deployment. This is according to the Russian general staff. The U.S. began testing new ground-based medium-range ballistic missiles and probing Asia-Pacific countries' willingness to host them immediately after walking out of the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia in 2019. For insight into this, let's turn to my next Next guest. He's retired from a global advisory services firm where he advises clients on their China strategies and business operations, educated at MIT, Stevens Institute, and Santa Clara University. And he's the founder and former managing director of International Strategic Alliances, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. So the uh, Sputnik piece states the Pentagon is dramatically ramping up its strike capabilities in the Asia Pacific and actively working on the diplomatic front to uh, station ballistic, hypersonic, and anti-missile interceptor missiles in the region. George, if the administration is actively working on the diplomatic front to station missiles, one would think since candidate Biden told us that his administration would lead with diplomacy, that he should be trying to resolve conflict, not state, not negotiating to station missiles to enhance conflict. Right. I mean, what, what you say is absolutely correct. And it's, um, it's a remarkable statement uh, from the Sputnik News that You know, instead of the State Department taking the lead on diplomatic efforts, it's the Pentagon going around saying, hey, we got the latest and greatest and we'd like to put some on your on your turf. Well, how about it? Um, Obviously, the United States is creating instability everywhere they go and in any any place, any island that accepts the the um, um, offer to put the latest and greatest missile on there, they have to think twice about it because then they become a target for the PLA in terms of uh, if there's if there's going to be a shootout. Um, and, and what's worth it? What what is it for them? And what's in it for them to have a weapon there um, for for no reason? There's nothing in it for them to to do that. And it's clearly an indication that uh, the United States is just looking to ramp up the, the military tension. And that's where our military budget is going. You know, we're spending what right now the proposed budget is $858 billion a year, which is more than we ever spent, even more than during the Trump years. And, and what, what is that for? You know, there's so much 
other things that we need the money for that we're not spending, and we're doing this just to be the big bully, uh, big bully in the Pacific. You know, there's another element here in terms of the U.S. walking out of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia in 2019. That tells me that what we're experiencing right now was planned, was anticipated, and was already pretty much already set. Yeah, I think what you say is true. I can't really comment on it because I didn't quite think about it and follow at the time when this was happening. Um, but obviously the warmongers are, are, um, are in control and, and, and they're, uh, they're following the, the urging of our military industrial complex because the more missiles you put down, the more missiles you get to build and charge Uncle Sam. Well, I, what, what I mean, I guess, is understanding the uh, Obama administration shift to China. And, yeah. you know, we, we, we've heard these buzzwords, these phrases. Uh, we know what the Trump administration was doing in terms of uh, walking away from the INF Treaty. And at, at the time, in the minds of many, those things kind of not not the not the Obama administration, but more more the Trump administration. The walking away from the treaty seemed to be more just erratic behavior. But now yeah. that erratic behavior, there seems to now have been a much clearer method to the madness. That's my point. Right, uh, right. I, I it, it it wasn't obvious then. It's it's either because of the the method. The method of madness has um, has taken over the Biden administration. They're continuing. They're continuing the the method of madness, or it was it was in the cards all along and was a uh, carefully planned. Uh, either either way, Wilmer, it's a pretty screwed up situation, and I just don't see any merit in um, in this in this particular strategy or approach that we're taking. George, that's not a very optimistic. Uh, <laughs> that's not a very optimistic statement. Uh, let, 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 how, how, how can you how can you put a lipstick on this pig? I want to know. <laughs> the, the South China Morning Post reports Beijing sanctions seven Taiwanese officials, bans them from visiting or doing business with mainland China. They've announced these sanctions. And the Taiwan Affairs Office of the Communist Party said today those sanctions and their family members would not be allowed to enter mainland China, Hong Kong, or Macau. Talk about this action. And this just seems to be one of many. We had, of course, the, the, the military exercises that were taken right after Nancy Pelosi left. This is almost as though... President Xi is playing a card game, and he's going to play card after card after card. China represents such a huge financial opportunity for investments, for trade, uh, for doing business, that uh, um, sanction is certainly one of the uh, weapons. And in fact, it was um, just levied against the Pelosi family, um, and it includes not only Nancy and Paul Pelosi and, and, and the rest of them, 
but it also includes uh, investment venture funds and other things that um, they invested in so that those funds are not going to be able to invest in China. Um, but so in general, it's, it's hurting. It's an attempt to hurt them at the pocketbook uh, and make them feel the, 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 um, the offset if they persist. And it's also a warning, I think, that um, to the rest of the people in Taiwan that um, they can close off Taiwan altogether, completely, and seal off Taiwan economically. And I, the last figure I saw, Taiwan has a trade surplus with the mainland of something like a $170 billion uh, per year. That would be, that would be gone. And then, uh, if they were to seal off the, uh, the island, island, Taiwan would just run out of fuel and run out, run out of everything because they just are so dependent mm-hmm. on supply from the outside. So it's a step by step type of, uh, tightening of the, the, of the news. And hopefully the DPP, the pro-independence folks, will see the implications, and if they don't see the implications, hopefully the people of Taiwan will see the implications and throw them out. The Asia Times reports China deploys latest attack sub for a Taiwan standoff. China's new Type 39C and D and other conventional subs would likely form the backbone of a potential Taiwan blockade. A new uh, Chinese submarine in the region, George, I don't think can be very good outlook for the U.S. Navy. Yeah, well, not only the subs, but um, the the Chinese have some of the hypersonic deadly missiles Mm -hmm. that can reach the the U.S. Navy. And this is why, you know, during the live fire exercise, USS Reagan, our, our carrier, got the hell out of there and went north as far as way as they can just to get out of harm's way and they understand the risk involved. So, you know, again, I, I'm no expert on military uh, affairs. I try not to follow it as far. I'm, I'm really a peacenik <laughs> throughout, <laughs> through and through. So, but uh, I thought the ratio, the fact that the Chinese have built more submarines uh, in per 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 cap or per naval ships as a proportion of all their naval vessels vessels is an indication that they're going to be counting on the submarines to uh, to blockade or seal off the island of uh, Taiwan. Whether that's going to succeed, whether how threatening, I mean, I, I you know, I would leave that for other people with more expertise than I. To make that kind of assessment, I think it's just a, a telling sign that they're very determined to um, to keep Taiwan under control. And to your earlier point, this uh, Asia Times piece reports that Taiwan reportedly has an 11-day supply of natural gas and 146 days worth of oil. That's not a good sign if you're if you're Taiwan. Right. I mean, you you obviously have to feel threatened because, uh, you know, if you don't have a continuous energy supply, and, and Taiwan is does not have a natural source of uh, of oil or gas, so they're 
totally dependent on uh, Im- import from from the other side outside, and if you can't get it, uh, your your goose is cooked. Um, it's it's very much a this is where they are most vulnerable. And the final piece is, uh, this is an interesting piece from Chinese Voices, how Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has enabled China to redefine the rules of the game. I think that's exactly what we're looking at uh, right now, you know, with these new Chinese submarines. And the, the not only is China able to expand economically and diplomatically, but China is also able to defend itself militarily, which is something that the United States, in the minds of those in charge right now, weren't anticipating. Yeah, although that you know that shouldn't be because um, <laughs> correct they they do uh, they they you know I mean the Pentagon has done all kinds of war games uh, on what would happen. And every time um, the U.S. come out on the losing end, for a very simple reason, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a battle around Taiwan, China has all the advantages of being closer to home. So, if you, and you're coming all the way from Guam or from Hawaii or from San Diego, you are already at a disadvantage from a logistics point of view and. And you know, even way back when the uh, you, you you understand wars of win or loss because of logistics. If you can't keep keep your supply line going, you you die on the line, so to speak. And you know, and and Pelosi's trip, as I had said on a previous um, Asia Times piece, once China said, "You don't step over the line, or we will respond." They always do what they say. Right, and when Pelosi step on over the line, they say, "Well, screw it. We're not gonna, we're not gonna observe what we have previously observed. The median line between mainland and Taiwan, no more median mm-hmm. line. We're gonna go anywhere we want. We will test fire any place we we do, and we'll do it anytime we wish. And that's gonna be the sword hanging over Taiwan. But I also." believe sincerely that China will will not fire on Taiwanese because from their point of view, they don't want to shoot at a fellow Chinese. They regard the people in Taiwan as Chinese, just like the Chinese on the mainland. So if hostilities were to break out, I think the first thing they will do, they will shoot at the U.S. naval missiles, uh, vessels, ships. Mm-hmm. And take them out of the action because once the ships are out of the action, Taiwan right. is basically helpless. Well, George, to your point about the war games and the response to it, when the basis of your ideology is American exceptionalism and manifest destiny, there's an incredible amount of arrogance that enters the equation and and can definitely cloud one's thinking. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmer. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We're back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Common Dreams has a piece entitled, Despite Housing Crisis, Mississippi May Return Up to Millions in Federal Rent Aid to Washington. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So Tate Reeves, Mississippi's Republican governor, faced intense criticism yesterday as the poorest U.S. state, that being Mississippi, ended participation in a federal rent assistance program that helped shield tens of thousands of people from facing eviction during the economic upheaval of COVID. Invoking Reagan, whose administration eviscerated the social safety net and turbocharged economic inequality, Reeves tweeted, Today in Mississippi, we are ending the RAMP program, a federal program that incentivizes people not to work by using taxpayer dollars to pay for up to 15 months of free rent and utilities. Dr. Tahid, one of the things that I've always found interesting, particularly, uh, or it seems to be more prevalent on the side of Republicans, are statements like this that offer absolutely no data to support the position that they're advocating. Because when I was looking at policy of this nature, I never saw data to support Ronald Reagan's positions about the welfare queen and all of that other other BS that he and his ilk were using to promote their racist agenda? Yeah, you're right. Uh, Ronald, Ronald Reagan's uh, uh, programs were, were purely ideological. Uh, they came from a position of wanting to sound as if there was some evidence for to support uh, various programs uh, and various statements, like there being such a thing as a welfare queen, uh, someone who is... Um, uh, receiving welfare while driving around the town in, a, in, in Cadillacs or Rolls Royces. Uh, there was absolutely no no evidence of that. But but Republicans continue to to uh, to want to uh, I guess um, uh, ride on Ronald Reagan's coattails as if he actually has coattails. Uh, one of the the problems, of course, is that many of the very conservative or maybe corporate Democrats also admire uh, Ronald Reagan and, and want to, 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 to quote him. But, but as, you, as the article mentioned, of course, Mississippi is one of the poorest, is, excuse me, the poorest state in the United States, to give you an, an idea of what that means. Uh, the wealthiest state in the U.S. is New York, and New Yorkers have an, a per capita, that is per person, income of $84,000. Mississippi has a per capita income of $39,000. Uh, it is uh, even less than less than half of what, of what New York is. Other states are in between. Uh, the idea that um, giving uh, rent assistance incentivizes people not to work flies in the face of the, of the empirical fact that when people are homeless, they cannot qualify for jobs. Uh, it's very difficult for a homeless person to get a job because they don't have a stable address. Uh, they can't to get transportation and so forth and so on. So the empirical evidence is that being homeless actually uh, increases unemployment. 
uh, paying rent uh, to 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 uh, allow them to stay in a house not only uh, increases the uh, their their job worthiness, if you will, but it also creates income for for uh, landlords and and others, and uh, that that income flows through the economy. So it does better for the economy to have that that assistance. According to Mississippi Today, the governor's office said the program has about $130 million remaining. They're not sure how much is going to be returned. They allocated about $340 million in assistance. The state has spent $200 million. He said that 86,146 people applied for the program. 36,889 were approved. And, you know, we've been talking about evictions on this program for quite a while, particularly as it related to to COVID. And, and we're seeing this problem across the country, not necessarily assistance being returned, but assistance running out, rents being raised, caps on rents being removed, when at a time when housing in the United States, affordable housing in the United States is still at a premium. Yes, and we're seeing this as the the country is moving into or already in recession, certainly moving deeper into recession because of the uh, uh, the Federal Reserve's fight uh, against inflation with with the wrong tools. And so, uh, just as the economy is is turning down, unemployment will will begin to to rise. We see Mississippi shooting itself. In, in 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 Mississippi's foot, except I suspect that part of the rationale for for Republicans in red states to do these kind of things, particularly in Mississippi, is that uh, Mississippi is uh, not only the poorest state in the U.S., but it's also the state with the largest African American population, uh, which means that a considerable number of those poor are African American. Now, I suppose. That uh, you know, we had the governor of of Texas, uh, Governor Abbott, send welfare recipients to New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect that this is just another attempt to get black uh, voters to move out of Mississippi somewhere else, so they won't uh, have an effect on Mississippi politics. And the final point on this. There's a uh, referencing allegations that Mississippi officials misspent funds meant to help impoverished impoverished residents. One of the spokespeople said it's deeply ironic that the governor is decrying supposedly wasteful spending while state leaders are embroiled in a scandal in which millions of dollars designated for the poor were instead funneled into luxury cars, sporting events and cell phones. So it sounds like it's the pot calling the kettle black. It would be a nice thing if if a corruptive payments to politicians would incentivize them not to work and to quit and to quit their jobs and uh, go let uh, decent people run the country or the or the state. Common Dreams has a piece on Social Security's 87th birthday. Progressives warn Republicans want to take a chainsaw to it. Advocates and progressive lawmakers celebrated the 87th birthday of Social Security one of the most popular and successful federal programs, and warned that its modest benefits remain under serious threat as Republicans openly signal their desire to gut the the New Deal mainstay. Last I checked, it's not only Republicans. I think Biden wanted to appoint someone to a Social Security commission who was advocating the privatization of Social Security. 
Yes, this was a kind of a, a, a little uh, advertised um, 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 nomination for a fellow named Andrew Biggs by the Biden administration to be on the Social Security Advisory Board. Uh, Andrew Biggs served in the Bush administration when uh, President Bush, uh, Bush II, in 2004 and 2005, wanted to privatize Social Security. So if he's not a Johnny-come-lately, and it's not like we don't know who he is. And that nomination uh, by Biden corresponds, of course, to Biden's 40-year history of wanting to also cut Social Security. Uh, we should also remember that uh, when, when President Obama was in office, uh, he appointed a commission of Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson, who um, used the, uh, the pay-for idea as a as a um, uh, a motivation to cut Social Security, and that became part of President Obama's what we call the grand bargain, that um, you know you, you you have to pay for these programs, and if you can't pay for let's say Social Security, then we need to do something to cut it. Uh, Hillary Clinton also picked up that mantra in her in her campaign. So so Biden has been around a long time. Uh, with this desire with Republicans to to uh, cut Social Security, although Republicans want to go further and, and privatize it or eliminate it completely. Because there is a lot of confusion. As I understand it, Social Security is one of the few programs, one of the few uh, programs that pays for itself. Yes. Not only, not only does Social Security pay for itself, money that is supposed to be in what's called the Social Security Trust Fund has been borrowed by other uh, parts of, of government to, to pay their bills. So Social Security is, one, in surplus. Uh, that surplus is flowing through other agencies and the government supporting them. So Social Security absolutely pays for itself. Now, there is a projected time frame out in um, um, uh, 2032 when the amount of money coming into Social Security will just equal or be a little less than the money that's going out. Uh, uh, one of the, uh, uh, the proposals from, from Senator Bernie, Bernie Sanders and other progressives is uh, we can fix that problem very simply by removing the cap on Social Security mm. uh, payroll taxes mm -hmm. uh, now set at $147,000. And they don't want to remove it on uh, you know, $148,000. They want to say if we, if we just put the cap on to those who are making over $400,000, that will uh, solve that solvency problem for 75 years to the end of this century and also allow increased benefits and increased cost of living allowance. So the solution to having enough money continuously in Social Security is simply to have millionaires pay their, their Social Security taxes. Because, again, it's important for people to understand that once you hit 400000 no, I'm sorry, once you hit 180000 Social Security tax is no longer taken out of your check. That's correct. That's correct. And they're just saying, put it in, you know, let every let everybody pay. And and, and again, it's not even everybody. It's over four hundred thousand dollars. So right. so so, uh, you know, there's a there's a, uh, a gap there that should um, uh, make. Uh, well, Social Security for and, and the increasing uh, uh, program to increase Social Security coming out of the um, um, uh, Sanders uh, Budget Committee is supported by over 80 percent of right. the population, including a majority of Republicans. So, so if if it's if there's ever a program that is supported by 
everyone across political lines, it is Social Security. Because, as she said, it has been a very successful program. And, you know, those who want privatization of Social Security, uh, like Bush uh, II tried to do but failed because of the political backlash, should understand that the Social Security uh, administrative fees on Social Security are about 4%. That means that over 99% of, of money that comes into Social Security goes out in payments. Uh, 401ks, the most successful, their, their uh, administrative fees are at least a half a percent, more than 0.4%, and up to 2%, and, and sometimes more. So Social Security is more effective than private uh, uh, pension programs. And to your point, there's a piece, 80% of U.S. voters across party lines support expanding Social Security. And I think it's important for people to understand that there's a ethnic dynamic or a racial dynamic here in terms of when you look at the poor mm-hmm. and you look at the percentage mm-hmm. of the poor who you whose Social Security benefits are their sole source of retirement. Mm-hmm. That's a frightening, frightening reality. Yes, yes. If I remember uh, correctly, uh, we have about 65 percent of African-Americans on Social Security for whom Social Security is their sole uh, source of retirement. And that averages about $1,400 per month. And so what progressives want to do is to increase that uh, so Mm -hmm. that uh, those persons can have at least uh, a more livable wage. And again, the the way you do that uh, and still pay for it is to increase the uh, Social Security taxes, uh, to replace, restore the Social Security taxes on millionaires. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Burundi sends troops into Congo as part of East African force. Burundian troops entered the Democratic Republic of Congo yesterday as the first deployment of an East African regional force aiming to quell rebel violence. This is according to Congo's army spokesperson. What's going on in Burundi and why? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace and coordinator of Black Alliance for Peace's U.S. Out of Africa Network, Tunde Osazua. Tunde, as always, man, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So the East African community, as I understand it, it is a group of seven nations, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the republics of the republics of Burundi, Kenya, Rwanda, South Sudan, Uganda, and Tanzania. And Congo joined last year. It's a basically a trading block that has signed agreements with the United States. That right there gives me pause or cause for concern. Should I be concerned about Who's behind these troops going into Congo and why? 
Yeah, I think, you know, there's ample, you know, reason for concern. Um, you know, Mao Zedong said that whoever controls the Congo controls the world. You know, they have immeasurable mineral resources in the Congo, and that has really made that country the victim of a long history of Western greed, plunder, and, and genocidal violence. And so, you know, the involvement of this East African community and, and this task force from Burundi, uh, ostensibly to fight rebels, really is, is an extension of that history. And, and we can really be sure that these, you know, military forces will do more to support, you know, the Western looting of Congo's wealth rather than stopping, you know, these rebels, right? Uh, we, we know that Rwanda and Uganda were trained by the U.S. and invaded the Congo twice you know, which and and they helped to unleash the deaths of over six million people in the country, and they, along with Burundi, right, are in the Congo, right. They have their own military forces, uh, Rwanda and Uganda, uh, uh, not really to quell this violence, but to quell rebel violence, but rather to protect access to resources for companies and Western forces. And so, you know, like you were saying, the the role of the U.S. and and its partners is is is, is um, you know, definitely important in, in this development, right? It was, you know, those forces like the U.S., Western forces, along with Rwanda, Uganda, and even Burundi, who brought about this, this issue that they're claiming to want to fight now, essentially. So talk about what is the conflict or what's the excuse for the conflict and who are the quote-unquote rebels, yeah, so um, the excuse for the conflict is that there are a number of different um, really groups uh, in the Congo that are vying for control uh, over over resources, over over the land. Um, and, and there are you know a number of, of foreign forces also in the Congo that are uh, 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 wanting to also stake claim to, to the, the land and the resources, right? So there are, like, different interests colliding, right? So, you know, there was, um, you know, there, there are rebels in, in, um, in different parts of the Congo, like the Allied Democratic Forces that have been, like, uh, been there since the 90s. Uh, there are groups uh, in, in, in Beni where thousands of people have been killed senselessly. Um, you know, I, I think when we speak about this uh, uh, conflict, this this uh, issue, this um, you know uh, uh, area in the Congo. There, there's you know there, there are just many different uh, uh, groups that are, are trying to to gain access to things like oil and cobalt. There have been licenses given to you know uh, different um, stakeholders like Dan Gertler, who's really like an Israeli secret service asset. Uh, you know, on the Ugandan side, there's the Total French Oil Company that's been securing a lot of licenses for oil exploitation. Uh, there's, uh, um, you know, uh, different, different interests. Uh, uh, there, there's an effort to build a long oil pipeline from Lake Albert to the Indian Ocean, which will go through, you know, the Congo as well as a lot of those East African uh, states and, 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 you know, Tanzania, Burundi, Rwanda, and Uganda. Um, and so, you know, th- there's just a lot uh, um uh, I guess we could say at stake here and, and just so many different forces that have been contributing to, 
you know, death and destruction and devastation for Congolese pe- people for for decades now. Like Congo has been plagued by militia violence for decades, really in the eastern borderlands with Burundi, Rwanda, and Uganda, right? And so, you know, this task force is claiming to want to, you know, stem that, but they're they're very much part of this uh, 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 development or this trend that, that's causing this this violence and this uh, like kind of uh, the, the, the infringement of, upon sovereignty and, and the way of life of, of Congolese people that's driving folks to join really militias, uh, that, that are, you know, that, that, that are fighting back against the, the, uh, these, these forces, uh, from Burundi, Rwanda, Uganda, and, and other, um, um, states. There is another, there's a piece in the New Arab Sudan, civil forces agree on principles of transitional period. Sudan's forces of for freedom and change, the country's main civilian bloc, announced a consensus among political, civil, and social forces on four crucial axes for a transitional period after a year of military rule. What's going on on the ground in uh, Sudan right now, and whose interests are being served with this agreement? It's mm, a great question. Um, so, you know, Sudan's forces for freedom and change, right, is, is the main, the country's main civilian bloc, right? Um, and so they uh, have been, you know, very influential in, in the uprisings that we've been seeing for, for years, right, in response to these various coups and, and you know, military uh, uh, rule, right? And so what we're seeing here is, um, you know, kind of uh, 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 an effort to bring about unity among democratic forces in, in Sudan, which would be a, a really big step forward in, in a country that has been, you know, run undemocratically for so long, right? It would help hopefully turn Sudan into a people state. But, I mean, I think the issue, one of the main uh, challenges here is that, you know, there's still this military apparatus that's tacitly supported by, you know, the U.S., you know, Israel and, you know, the Gulf monarchies of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and others. And so, you know, as long as that military apparatus is in place, any transitional process to adjust in humane society is challenging. We even saw like last late July, you know, the Sudanese Communist Party uh, resigned from the forces. Well, it had resigned from the forces for freedom and change. In, in 2020, but they, you know, cited what they thought was, you know, uh, indecisiveness as it related to the role of the military within Sudanese society and the government, and they built their own alliance um, and and have rejected any uh, 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 governance role for the Sudanese armed forces within a future administration, right? So I think what we're seeing is that folks are, are reckoning with the role of the military in Sudan and, you know, seeing it as, as a real impediment. To, to achieving, you know, the revolutionary change that they, they've been seeking for, for so long, that they've been fighting for in the streets for, for many years now. So in this New Era piece, they write that hundreds of Sudanese rallied on Sunday in support of a political initiative backed by Army Chief Abdel Al-Burhan, who led last year's coup. The rallies took place outside of a Khartoum conference hall where meetings had been held. So... Where is Burhan in all of this mix now? And if 
as you said, the FFC, the Sudan's Forces for Freedom and Change, are working together with Burhan. Where are the American interests in all of that? Right. Um, so Burhan is uh, um, uh, essentially uh, a, a major figure within the military apparatus, right, that is supported by the United States okay. and, um, and, and, the, and Israel and, and the Gulf monarchies. And so, you know, the, the FFC is uh, uh, maybe too close to the, um, uh, the, the military apparatus that has, you know, really led to some of the anti or, or undemocratic uh, uh, processes that have been taking place in Sudan that have, you know, really sparked a lot of the political unrest in recent years. Since 2019, when when Bashir uh, uh, was ousted, right, and so I think you know what what we need to be concerned with is the role of the military, um, uh, and and you know what that uh, represents for for Sudanese society uh, and 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 the people's sovereignty. Let, let me jump in and ask this, because I, I seem to recall reading fairly recently that basically the Sudanese military was losing ground. And so if if they were losing ground and Burhan now wants to call for this period of calm, that seems to me to be his looking to rearm and strengthen himself in trying to avoid being overrun. Absolutely. No, that that's that's how I see it as well. Okay. Um, you know, all of these protests have been a- against the coup that Burhan led uh, uh, in that October. Uh, um, um, happening. And so I, I, I think, you know, this calling for this, this transitional period is absolutely for that. And, and you know, we, we need to be uh, cognizant of, of, you know, the role of the military in, in maintaining, you know, Burhan's leadership and, and the military uh, leadership of Sudan. And then also, you know, that influence of the U.S. and Israel and, and, and the Gulf monarchies. I agree. There's a piece in Responsible Statecraft, Biden's new Africa strategy is short-sighted and stale. The administration hasn't learned from past mistakes, is openly focused on great power competition, and can't quit the counter-terror lens. And the first two stories that we talked about seem to be validation of this position. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, what this new uh, Africa strategy uh, uh, points to is that Africa is at the center of what what is shaping up to be a 21st century Cold War. You know, there are several geopolitical powers that are seeking to enhance their influence uh, and, and co- cooperation with the continent of Africa. So, you know, the U.S. is, is one of those main players, uh, and, and they, you know, seek to continue to practice full-spectrum dominance over the world, right? And that, that really means, you know, military control, over land, sea, air, and space, right? And, and they, they're doing that to protect, you know, U.S. or capitalist interests and investment, right? And, and so, you know, this new Africa strategy is, you know, just an, an attempt to, you know, continue that military dominance in the context of, you know, war and competition with forces like China and Russia. Um, and so I think, you know, when we talk about Sudan and, and Burundi, right, it, it's, it, it makes sense that, you know, those uh, uh, conflicts or those, those uh, uh, developments are, are, are really, you know, tied to the, the main maintenance of, of U.S. access to, to, to resources, to 
you know, the, their operational freedom to, you know, maintaining corporate profits and, and forces like, you know, China and Russia are, are threats to that. So a lot of, you know, you know, this new Africa strategy, which is very much, you know, very similar to, to Obama's strategy, is focused on countering, you know, China and Russia so that they can, you know, maintain their access to resources. And then there's, there's a lot, I guess, that is said about the fight against terrorism, which we know has been, mm-hmm. you know, woefully uh, inadequate. It's been unsuccessful. Like they, they've, you know, actually, uh, the U.S.'s efforts through things like AFRICOM and uh, uh, other military engagements has, has really only increased uh, uh, the incidences mm-hmm. of terrorism mm-hmm. uh, by something like fivefold, right? So I think, you know, that, that's what we're seeing with this new strategy. Tunde Osazua, thank you so much. Thank you for that analysis. Look forward to having you back. Yeah, thank you for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Consortium News has a piece entitled, Sometimes Humanity Gets It Right. It opens as follows. When it comes to U.S.-Russian arms control, sometimes history should repeat itself. President Joe Biden recently called for Russia to resume arms control negotiations aimed at keeping the existing new START treaty, scheduled to expire in 2026, viable. Russia responded by suspending all inspection activity related to new START, declaring that the United States was seeking unilateral advantage by denying Russia access to inspection sites in the U.S. while demanding that Russia permit American inspectors access to sites in Russia. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WMD. His most recent book is Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, and he's the author of this piece. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You continue in your piece, arms control, once the cornerstone of U.S.-Russian relations appears to be on life support, and with it, the future of international peace and security. How so, Scott Ritter? Well, I mean, just what I said in the in the opening, um, you know, we only have one arms control treaty left with Russia. It's called New START, um, and it's it's not, let's just be frank, it's not the greatest arms control treaty out there. There's a lot of um, potential built into it for uh, rapid rearmament, uh, if, if anybody was ever to leave the treaty. Um, and they've, devi- they've de-emphasized on-site inspection, um, which is a critical confidence-building measure uh, that's been thoroughly uh, integrated past um arms control agreements, including the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which initiated it, started it all, um, that I was a, a, a part of. Um, there's no trust. You know, the, the INF Treaty also talked about trust but verify, Ronald Reagan's famous uh, theft of a Russian uh, saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there's, not only are we not verifying right now, I mean, Russia 
I mean, we, we, this is how stupid we are. We tell the Russians because of sanctions, because the sanctions we imposed on Russia uh, about the Ukraine war, um, that Russia can't come over and inspect uh, sites that it has a right to under the New START Treaty in the United States. Uh, but because Russia hasn't sanctioned the United States, the United States is insisting that it be allowed to carry out inspections in Russia. Um, you know, and this is why the Russians said, no, until this is resolved, no inspections at all. This is not the path you take if you want to further disarmament. We're, we're at a, a stage right now where New START is no longer an effective disarmament vehicle. Uh, Russia has built um, in, an entire generation of new strategic nuclear arms, some of which fall outside of the definitions of weapons covered by New START. So if we're truly seeking uh, to, to you know, somehow control uh, the growth or even encourage the reduction of nuclear arms, we need to capture those weapons with a new agreement. Um, meanwhile, the United States is looking at a situation where our entire nuclear triad, the submarine-launched missiles, um, silo-launched missiles, the nuclear bombers, is in need of a... Um, $300 billion um, re rejuvenation, which given the way the American you know, cost overruns uh, associated with American weapons procurement means we're going to be end up spending about a trillion and a half dollars to rebuild. Again, a disarmament treaty that uh, captured the Russian uh, weaponry, helped reduce it, and reduced the need for us to spend all this money would be a good treaty. We should be working with the Russians toward that objective. But we're not. We can't even agree on allowing inspections to take place for the treaty we've already negotiated. Um, and I brought this up uh, in, in the context of, you know, where do we go from here? Because at some point in time, this war in Ukraine is going to end and, you know, Russia and the United States are going to have to find an off ramp. And so I brought up um, the, the, the example of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that was uh, signed in 1987, implemented in 1988. I played a, a critical role in the uh, formative years of this treaty. And so I, I put that up as not just an interesting piece of history on how we got it right. You know, George Santayana, American philosopher, said those who forget the lessons of history are condemned to repeat it. Mm -hmm. I, like to, I like to flip that a little bit. Those who forget the lessons of history are unable to repeat the successes of history. Mm. And the INF Treaty is one of the greatest successes in arms control history. You know, today we talk about how bad relations are. You know, a proxy war in Ukraine, um, a disarmament treaty falling apart, economic sanctions. Uh, you know, we got people being arrested and tried and prisoner swaps being negotiated. Things are pretty bleak. They ain't as bleak as they were in the 1980s. It was worse in the 1980s. Mm. It's the same thing we're having. You know, people are like, what do you mean worse? How about Afghanistan, where we fought a proxy war against the Soviets, where we were killing thousands of them? How about the sanctions we imposed on the Russian gas? How about the intermediate nuclear-range missiles that were being poured into the theater, threatening the world with global annihilation? How about the Russians shooting an American major, Arthur Nicholson, to death in East Germany? Uh, because of the tensions there. Things were worse. The shooting down of KAL-007, uh, two Americans, including an American congressman, shot down by a Russian fighter. Uh, Able Archer 83, brought a, 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 a NATO exercise, brought us to the brink 
of nuclear war because the Russians didn't trust us. Um, that's how bad things were in the 80s. And Ronald Reagan called them the evil empire. I mean, the ultimate uh, you know, degradation, the ultimate uh, insult. And yet, two years later, we had a signed treaty and inspectors on the ground in both Russia and the United States carrying out this groundbreaking disarmament. Um, and it, it, it breathed life into the trust but verify mantra. It led to new arms control agreements, and it provided hope. We could recapture that if we allow ourselves to remember the success of history. The template provided by the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty could be used to create a new arms control agreement. And that was the purpose of the article, is to not only educate people on you know, a very important period of history, but also put that up as, you know, this is a success story that should be repeated if only we remember the lessons of history. Talking about the INF Treaty, and I was discussing this with another one of our analysts, George Koo, a little earlier in the show, the United States walked away in 2019 from that treaty, and now the United States is trying to find countries in the Asian Pacific that will allow the U.S. to station ballistic, hypersonic, and anti-missile interceptor missiles as the United States is trying to find a way to encircle China. Is there a correlation between the walking away in 2019, the pivot towards China, and the missiles that we're now trying to get countries to allow us to put on their shores? Was this the ultimate method to the madness? Well, no. I mean, that yes, the, the, there were a couple things. One, the United States was in absolute non-compliance with the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. We manufactured a case against Russia that is absurd as the day is long. Everybody involved knew what was happening. We see the missile being fired every day in Ukraine, the caliber missile. It's a sea-launched missile. Uh, but to test that missile, you, you need to test it from a ground-launched facility. And the Russians did that. It's, a declare, it's allowed. It's permitted. But we went and said, no, that's a testing of a ground-launched missile. Um, and we didn't take the, you know, the Russians offered to show us the missile, uh, do whatever is necessary. To, we wouldn't do it. We just wanted to accuse them of cheating because we were cheating, because we put two ballistic missile defense facilities on the ground in Poland and Romania that were an adaptation of what's called the Mark 41 Aegis system. It's a modular system that shoots not only the, uh, the, 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 anti, the, the surface-to-air missile that we're using now as an interceptor, but also the Tomahawk cruise missile. Hmm. And the Russians kept saying, hey, uh, that thing can shoot cruise missiles. We kept saying, no, it can't. No, it can't. Uh, we, we've, we've adapted it, so it can't do it. Don't worry. Well, we'd like to inspect it. No, you can't inspect it. Don't worry, you can't shoot cruise missiles. One month after we pulled out of the INF Treaty, we test-fired a cruise missile from the Mark 41 Aegis Source System, proving that the Russians were telling the truth the whole time, that we were the cheaters. We're the cheaters. We're the liars. We're the people that can't be trusted. So that's one of the reasons was we had to get out of this very difficult situation that we had found ourselves in uh, by lying, because that's all we do when it comes to arms control is lie. The other one was, we kept saying the Chinese aren't involved. Uh, you know, China had built up a whole family of intermediate nuclear or intermediate range nuclear missiles, or even conventional missiles, missiles that we felt we had no counter to. Um, the, the thing is, the Chinese missiles were a counter to 
our, you know, our aircraft carriers and our air force. It was a way of evening out. It wasn't as if the Chinese had an advantage. They just had different weapons to deal with different scenarios that we applied different weapons to deal with. Um, so we're trying to compare apples and oranges. All we've done is get rid of the treaty that saved Europe and the world from nuclear annihilation. And we've created a situation where we're putting those weapons right back in. Dark Eagle is a hypervelocity missile under development by the United States with intermediate nuclear uh, intermediate range that we've already activated the brigade in Germany to receive it. Once Dark Eagle goes active in, in Europe, which is expected sometime in 2023, uh, the Kremlin will be struck within five minutes of any launch. This means the Russians can no longer allow common sense to come into play. Uh, is it an accident? What's going on? Can we make a phone call? Uh, the second they detect a launch, and it could be a mistake, they're going to assume it's the real deal because they can't afford not to, and they're going to hit the button firing everything because their nuclear posture is launch on warning. But when they're warned of an attack, they're throwing everything at us. This is a situation that the INF Treaty got rid of back in the 1980s, 1990s. All we've done by getting out of this treaty is recreate this with even worse weaponry. So we're going to need a new INF Treaty. That's I think everybody recognizes that. Whether or not the Chinese can get involved is another question altogether. At a minimum, Europe demands the old treaty be brought back to life. If we can find a way to get the Chinese involved in it, great. But, you know, why would China negotiate with us after what we've done with Taiwan? So, you know, <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden uh, spoke uh, at the opening session of, by a video of the uh, 10th uh, Nuclear Nonproliferation Review um, a meeting that's taking place in New York right now. And he said that we need to enter these negotiations with, uh, with Russia. But he said, but we need a trustworthy partner. And the Russians aren't trustworthy. Look in the mirror, Joe. You're the least trustworthy person out there. You lead the nation that has lied in every arms control agreement it's ever entered into. We're the ones who can't be trusted. We enter agreements, we enter treaties, then we withdraw from them. We enter treaties and we cheat. Um, we have to change this. We have to get the Chinese to trust us. We have to get the Russians to trust us. And again, the INF Treaty was a groundbreaking treaty because there was a lot of distrust back in the 80s. And that's the treaty that got us out of it. That, 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 that like I said, breathed life into trust but verify. We need to have that kind of attitude reborn. And uh, quickly, Putin says collective West purposely destroying European security systems, NATO moving east. He talks about Western globalist elites provoking chaos and rekindling old and inciting new conflicts. We got a minute and a half. When I read these words, to me, he's speaking the truth. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the, the interesting thing is um, in these times we live in, <laughs> uh Putin has given some speeches lately. Uh, he gave one uh, back in June at the uh, St. Petersburg Economic Forum mm -hmm. uh, that basically redefined the economic reality in the world today. Nobody in the West paid attention to it, mm -hmm. but it literally uh, set it, – it was the divorce decree that said, we're not working with you guys anymore. We're done with you. We're setting this new course. This is the direction we're heading, and the whole world's coming with us. Goodbye. And the West went, nah, nah, he doesn't mean he just gave the speech you, that you talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it basically, it said, you know, the West is the enemy of the world, and the world needs to come together. He also, at that same speech, he said, 
We're going to be selling uh, all these new <laughs> weapons that you guys are seeing. Mm-hmm. We're going to give them to the world because they have to take you on. You guys suck. We're going to kill you. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the that posture. Got it. And the United States can't afford to ignore it. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The New Arab has a piece entitled, Hamas Denies Negotiating with Saudis on Detainees Held in Riyadh. The Islamic Hamas movement yesterday denied conducting any negotiations with Saudi Arabia over its detainees who've been in Saudi jail since 2019. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's an independent journalist, writer, and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So uh, help me understand what's going on here. And as far as you know, has Hamas been involved in negotiations? And if not, why would the Saudis project that they are? Well, uh, definitely Hamas has been asking for the release of uh, Palestinian detainees in uh, the Saudi state. Uh, These are Palestinians that have uh, posted uh, comments online uh, in defense of uh, Palestine. And some of them clearly, you know, have links to Hamas. Some of them don't. Uh, But ultimately, the Saudis are just, uh, you know, holding any Palestinian that uh, shows support for resistance uh, hostage in their jails. Now, did this negotiation happen or not? Uh, it is uh, clearly too far. Too, the two sides are you know, saying uh, different things about it. Um, and uh, ultimately, what we heard from the Saudis is that they wanted the, Iranian, the, the Hamas to uh, you know, step away from the relations with Iran in order to receive uh, the hostages back to out of the country. Now, of course, Hamas is going to deny this request, and we don't know really if these negotiations happened or not, but we know that many other um, you know, mediators have, have tried, uh, including the Yemeni resistance uh, in its uh, fight against the Saudi invasion, uh, demanded the release of all Palestinians held in uh, the Saudi jails in return for a ceasefire. In fact, help me understand, because I, I thought that it wasn't even a month ago that the Saudis and the Iranians were engaged in discussions. And those discussions, I I thought they were public. They were made public, and they seemed to be quite collegial. So... Why would the Saudis demand Hamas step away from their relationship with Iran? 
I mean, look, uh, the Saudis are losing control of any of the Arabic countries. And it's also, you know, in its uh, kind of competition with Iran, have lost. Uh, uh, clearly, their public supports Iran uh, in its defense of uh, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen. Uh, and uh, what is left right now for the Saudis is to punch down. If they can't compete with the Iranians directly, uh, they will try to punch down at a, a group like Hamas, which is mainly active in Gaza, a besieged territory. Uh, Hamas needs the donations of Palestinians in the diaspora, specifically in the Gulf, who have more of a liquidity to be able to send some money to Gaza. So, you know, clearly the Saudis are trying to make it harder for Hamas to, you know, get those donations from Palestinians in the diaspora in the Gulf region. Uh, and that's the only way they can uh, show that they have some power or say in what is happening in uh, Western Asia. The New Arab has a piece, UN Envoy Seeks Expanded Yemen Truce to Spur Ceasefire Talks. The top UN envoy for Yemen said yesterday he is intensifying efforts to achieve an expanded truce between the warring parties that would hopefully lead to the start of talks on a ceasefire and preparations for resuming a Yemeni-led political process. Uh, where are we now in Yemen, Laith Marouf? Oh, this is a big question because, you know, the Yemeni uh, government of, of Sana'a and the resistance have made a statement today warning that they will be using strategic weapons to hit uh, the Emirates and uh, Saudi occupied Arabia if they don't stop their attacks on Shabwa and Marib, the two provinces that have the majority of oil and gas in Yemen. Um, if your listeners don't know, a few days ago, uh, the Emirati forces uh, invaded uh, Shabwa province and took over its capital uh, after actually the Saudis, uh, and this is where things get really complicated, the Saudis were backing the Muslim Brotherhood Islah uh, Party, uh, who initially took over uh, the Shabwa capital and the Emiratis came in with their own forces and uh, slaughtered the Muslim Brotherhood uh, Islah Party and took over the province. So it seems like there's a competition uh, between the Emiratis and the Saudis. And uh, why I said this this is very funny because you know Hamas is a you know quote unquote Muslim Brotherhood uh, organization, and the, the Saudis are you know trying to squeeze them while at the same time they are supporting their equivalent, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in uh, Yemen. So if the advances of the Emiratis and the Saudis on the territory of Yemen continue, then we really don't have a ceasefire. So this United Nations envoy is uh, just, uh, you know, talking out of his butt, basically. It's not, there's nothing, there is really no, there is no ceasefire. And the, the, the resistance in Yemen will be hitting targets in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates very soon if the advances continue. I hope this doesn't sound like a sophomoric question, 
whose interest is the is Hans Grundberg working for as the top UN envoy for Yemen? Is he operating as an independent negotiator trying to seek peace? Is he operating on behalf of the United States under the cover of the UN? Whose interests is he really trying to uh, trying to further? Look, clearly, the United Nations is a uh, institution that has been captured by the American interests, and the Saudis and the Emiratis are just vessels of the United States. Up until now, we don't know where things are going to go from this point with the changes with Russia and and China coming into Western Asia. Uh, but ultimately, you know, any any nation that is seeking uh, sovereignty and independence sh- should not trust the United Nations. Uh, we can, you know, see that from all the statements that constantly come out from the United Nations uh, in terms of Palestine, for instance. Uh, it's always weak statements whenever the Zionists uh, commit massacres in uh, Palestine, and then it's... Uh, loud condemnations when the Palestinians resist. Similarly, as here we see the United Nations is trying to delay any resistance from the Yemeni uh, government uh, to allow, really, the Saudis and the Emiratis to reorganize their troops and their uh, militias that they have on the ground in Yemen. And that's what happened over the last two months. This attack on Shabwa. Uh, wouldn't have been possible if uh, there was no ceasefire. These these, uh, militias that the Saudis and the Emiratis were funding and arming were at the brink of collapse before the ceasefire. And the only reason that the Sana'a government agreed to a ceasefire was because its population was starting to starve. Um, And unfortunately, until now, the ceasefire didn't bring any benefits to the population of Yemen. There's another story in the New Era. A Saudi academic sentenced to 34 years in prison after expressing support for women's rights. Salma al-Shahab, a mother of two and a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Leeds, was detained by Saudi authorities when visiting the kingdom for a holiday in early 2021. And now, you know, there was all of this talk that the Saudis were becoming progressive, that women are driving and all these other types of freedoms were being bestowed upon them. And one of the other things that I find interesting is that I haven't heard a peep from the uh, Biden government. Of course, because, you know, that whole campaign to uh, wash the image of uh, Saudi after the killing of Khajurshi and chopping him up uh, in the embassy in uh, Turkey was was organized specifically to, uh, you know, give a, a better chance for the Saudis to continue uh, being protected by the Americans. And, and this is, you know, in, in the same light when we talk about uh, greenwashing that uh, the, the media in the West conducts to portray Israel as some eco ecological country that uh, that has advanced uh, knowledge in saving uh, the environment. Of course, uh, the Saudi regime is built on a cult, uh, a cult of Wahhabism, 
which is not only um, denigrates women, but also, you know, uh, it, it claims that anybody who doesn't belong to that cult, even Muslims who don't belong to that cult, are, are heretics. Uh, and therefore, here we see that the Americans, now that they got already the, uh, you know, washing the image has happened of MBS and the Saudis, the deals were done, or the billion dollars deals of, of weapons, and the, the oil continues to flow. So, of course, the media in the West is going to hide the story of uh, this uh, Saudi academic, uh, Salma al-Shihab, who is, you know, now languishing in prison for just uh, hinting that she supports uh, women's rights to equality in the kingdom. One of the uh, spokespeople for the uh, Freedom Initiative says Saudi Arabia has boasted to the world that they are improving women's rights and creating legal reform, but there is no question with this abhorrent sentence that the situation is only getting worse. Is this story, how is this story being covered uh, in the region, and uh, is this generating any outrage? I mean, uh, clearly we're reading an article from a Qatari outlet, so... You know, and that's a country that has a uh, competition with the Saudis over influence in the Arabic world. The rest of the, you know, media in the Arabic world is is busy with their with or with their own internal issues, and uh, main, much of the media in the Arabic world is is uh, owned by the Saudis, you know, and funded by them. So they they are not daring to mention this. This is a story that is not covered you know in the arabic world because of that uh concentration of media ownership um in terms of uh you know the rights of women in saudi arabia i lived in in riyadh the capital uh, of saudi for 12 years between 1980 and 92 and i can tell you that even men uh in that country don't have rights i, I remember as a kid uh you know, having to be very careful, uh, you know, where I go and how I present myself. So I can, mm-hmm. you know, ex- expect that the women are living mm-hmm. hell there. This okay. is one of the places that I, my worst enemy, I would say, I would wish them to live in Riyadh. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's a very interesting piece in Mint Press entitled J Street, Andy Levine and Liberal Zionism. The liberal Zionist voice, which many people mistake for actual support for justice in Palestine, is toxic and dangerous and probably serves Israel and its brutal racist agenda more than any other ideology, end quote. 
I say that's a very glaring and incendiary statement when compared to the dominant narrative that J Street and quote-unquote liberal Zionism are moral options to the oppression of the Zionist government in the colony of Israel. For insight, let's turn to my next guest. He's a Mint Press News contributing writer, published author, and human rights activist born in Jerusalem. His latest books are The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. And he's the author of this piece, Miko Pellet. As always, Miko, welcome back. Thank you, my friend. Did you just call me incendiary? I said that that piece is incendiary when compared to the dominant narrative. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you as always. You write the most glaring example of this, of course, J Street and his followers. The following two statements are from the advocacy group's website. One, we support Israel's right to defend itself militarily and believe that maintaining Israel's qualitative military advantage in the region is one essential element of a strategy to keep Israel secure for the long term. And the second is, we believe that Israel's military actions in Gaza have both have been both understandable and, and justifiable. No country can be expected to absorb thousands of rockets without the right to respond militarily. I'll throw it to you, Miko Pellet. Yes, I mean, you know, what got me what got me working on the piece itself is this ridiculous interview that uh, now the outgoing congressman, Andy Levin, gave to Mehdi Hassan, where he presented himself as this the only or the most progressive voice calling for justice for Palestinians uh, in Congress. And here, you know, the evil APAC is coming after him and so on and so forth. But he's nowhere near, not, not even near being uh, an advocate for Palestinian rights. Because, of, first of all, the, the word uh, secure Israel is code for allowing Israel to bomb Gaza, arrest innocent civilians, and torture children. It's code. The whole idea that Israel is somehow democratic is, again, it's code for allowing the apartheid regime to continue uninterrupted. So he, excuse me, and, and, and J Street, which is his, uh, you know, the, an organization that, that with whom he shares a great deal, this is what they say. How can anybody say, I mean, understandable, sure, a lot of people understand racism, a lot of people understand violence, a lot of people condone it. But at least don't pretend that you're, that you're some kind of a liberal and you care for justice. If J Street says that what, if, what Israel does in Gaza is understandable, justifiable, then they are, they are supporters of terrorism, they are supporters of violence, they are supporters of racism, and they should not portray themselves as liberals and people who care for peace and justice. It's a lie, and it's a lie that needs to be exposed. So what is this, or what is the basis of this so-called conflict between J Street and APAC? Well, they both want the same dollars. APAC, um, APAC presents, I think, the real Israel. Unabashedly, unapologetically, Israel is a racist, violent state, and we support it. Pretty much end of story. J Street is like the fig leaf. J Street is the fig leaf that's trying to cover up Israeli crimes and pretend that there's some kind of a, you know, pie in the sky, 
some kind of a lovey-dovey, peace-loving state of Israel, which has never been the case. It's never been true. There's no sign whatsoever that it could possibly ever become true. But the Siglis allows Israel to continue its oppression, allows Israel to continue its persecution of Palestinian activists and, and, and the killing of Palestinians, whether they're children, whether they're fighters, whether they're activists, whether they're journalists, across the board, they get killed by Israel. And at the same time, pretend that actually, you know, all we really want is peace, you know, we're only killing them out of love. I mean, it's such a horrifying lie. It's such a terrible thing to do, to cover up, to be the fig leaf that covers up these crimes, and then to pretend that actually all we really all want is, you know, uh, peace and love. You write, looking at it from Palestine, Representative uh, Levine, his claims to be pro-Palestinian are even more absurd than they are when seeing them from the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I'm right here. I'm, I'm in Palestine right now. I'm in Jerusalem. I was in Hebron yesterday. I was in, uh, in, in Bethlehem the day before. I see what, is, what they're doing to activists. I see what they're doing to children. I see how the army steps in. Just, just the other day in Hebron, the army steps in. And these two little girls are crying because they can't go home. Why? Because the settlers wanted to use the road to move, uh, to move into a house or something, and they didn't want Palestinians looking at them. They didn't want them to see Palestinians. So two little girls in tears are being held by, by you know, fully armed Rambo-type uh, you know, soldiers because these two little girls want to go home, and the Israeli settlers don't want to see them. And then, of course, we happen to be there with with Amro, who's a Palestinian human rights activist, and so on. And here we are, we have an altercation, and the soldiers are protecting the settlers. I mean, these things are happening all the time. Palestinian activists' lives are at risk, they're in danger. Bombing of Gaza goes on uninterrupted, uh, with no condemnation from AFAC, with no condemnation from Andy Levin. How dare they say that they want peace? How dare they say that they stand for Palestinian rights? How dare they say that Israel is a democracy? You know, this is an outrage. Liberal Zionism is an outrage. And J Street is an outrage. And Andy Levin pretending that he lost because he's some sort of a liberal who cares about Palestinian rights is an outrage. And it has to be exposed. And he has to be confronted. And he told me personally when I met him a few years ago, he had just taken office. Shortly after he took office, I met him in Washington, D.C., and we were talking about another representative, Betty McCollum, and her bill to defend Palestinian children here from the torture and the arrest and the harassment of the Israeli authorities. And he said to me, in the very words I'll never forget, he said, I will never sign that bill, and neither will any of the other Jewish members of Congress, because it's anti-Israel. Mm. Well, if it's anti-Israel, then you should be anti-Israel, because the children are more important. What's more important, to stand up for this, for this you know, nuclear uh, militaristic state, nuclear arm, you know, that possesses a nuclear arm, or to stand up for the rights of children? You know, it's a question of values, and if you think one, if you think children are the lesser value, then you're out of your mind and you should be exposed. Is J Street really just a, a, a PR ploy for APAC? It's the fig leaf. 
Okay. I think J Street is the fig leaf that allows the APAC to continue. It's what's work. So, you know, APAC may be a little misguided, but actually Israel is a good thing, and Israel is on the right track. You know, everybody makes mistakes, you know, blah, 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 bad apples, but they're actually, you know what I mean? So I think that's the relationship between the two organizations, and that's the relationship between liberal Zionism in general and the state of Israel. In this section of your piece, Decoding the Propaganda, you talk about the two-state solution is code for allowing the Israeli apartheid state to continue its crimes against Palestinians indefinitely. How so? As long as Israel can perpetuate the lie that it actually wants peace, but there's no one to talk to on the other side, you know, the other side are terrorists, look at them, you look at the Palestinians, they're all hate, they're all full of hate, they're all full of terror, and so on then nobody gets in the way of Israel perpetuating its own crime. Nobody gets in the way of Israel kicking out Palestinians and, bid, bid, and building more and more and more cities and towns for Jews only on Palestinian land, sometimes across the street, or not sometimes, very often, across the street. So they'll, bring, they'll, they'll build a neighborhood in a city, modern, beautiful housing, with lights and, of course, running water and electricity and, I mean, everything you could possibly want in a modern home. Across the street from Palestinians who had no water, no electricity, no sewage, no roads, across the street, or sometimes a block away, in the same city, in the same town. This is the, this is the reality on, this is the reality here. This is precisely what is happening. This is precisely what Israel is all about. Palestinians deserve nothing. Palestinians need to get the hell out. And if we can't kill them because it doesn't look good, then we're going to make their life miserable so that they, they will either kill themselves or leave. I mean, this is, this is what has been going on here. This is what you see here every single day if you pay attention. There's a piece in the Jerusalem Post. Were five Gazan kids killed by IDF or Islamic Jihad during Breaking Dawn? The IDF initially said that five children were killed by an Islamic Jihad rocket, but a new report suggests the Israeli military is responsible. Talk a little bit about that and the fact that the death of these five children are just five children in a, in a litany of dead children. These children were killed for one reason and one reason only. They were killed because they live in the world's largest concentration camp, a concentration camp that, where Israel keeps two million people without access to water, food, health care. I mean, they get access for food, but there's a calorie count that, that guides the, you know, how much food they're, they're allowed to, uh, is allowed into the Gaza Strip. And um, the only reason these children were killed, and by the way, the Gaza Strip out of the two million people, the majority are under 18 years old. More than 50% are children. And when you bomb a population that is that densely, I mean, an area with such dense population, you're going to kill children. The only, it doesn't matter if, the, first of all, Haaretz today said that the IDF reports that, yes, the IDF was responsible for the death. But the state of Israel was responsible for the death either way. Either way. The only reason that all this bombing and shooting is taking place in the Gaza Strip is because the Gaza Strip exists as a prison of over 2 million people. There should not be a Gaza Strip. These people should be allowed to go home. The fences should be taken down. The walls should be taken down. The Palestinian refugees need to be allowed to go back to their home, back to their land, back to their rights, back to their water, and it needs to happen right away. 
the Sixth Fleet, which is in the Mediterranean, needs to come right now in the, to aid the people of Gaza with humanitarian care, with uh, health and, me- and, and medical care that's urgently needed, and to impose a no-fly zone so Israel can no longer fly over Gaza and bomb it, and then allow these people to go back to their land and their homes. That's what needs to happen. Miko Pellet, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Stay safe and look forward to having you back. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space. I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out. I'm out.